Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And the last time we spoke, I was huddled inside an Airbnb in Austin, Texas, gearing up for South by Southwest, which has not quite ended, but I'm back in New York now. Hey, Eric, you must be, like, exhausted. You were churning out one big review after another. You, You sat down with Mike Judge. You interviewed Frank Oz. You, you know, you, you were like constantly filing. You must've been exhausted. I mean, so yes, there was daylight savings time, but there was also festival standard time, which is a totally different kind of experience as a journalist. And one that, as you know, once you're inside of it, something else happens. It's like being on assignment for a war or a zone or something. Yeah, The adrenaline kicks in. Exactly. So when you, when you're dealing with something that's time sensitive and a big movie comes and you got to get the word out, a lot of people turn to Twitter. We need to like get something more substantial out. So you just kind of get the work done. But it so would- Eric, let me ask you something. You um, have been going for quite a few years, and Janet Pearson has just been doing a marvelous job of of turning this into uh, a real marketing launch pad for a certain kind of youth oriented commercial movie. And but I was just talking to Chris O'Fault, who came to our um, Emmy uh, lunch today, which is a whole other subject, which we will get to. But what Chris said, which was really interesting, was the idea that there's two festivals going on, the one with the big premieres at the Paramount and the other with all the little, we talked about this last week, the little small discovery films. Yes, it's true. I think the challenge for them? Well, it's, it's a, I, I don't know if it's a problem for them. It sort of depends on what the agenda is for the festival, but it is a challenge in terms of assessing the South by Southwest as a singular event, because it really is, it has many different modes and that, that extends to the interactive side, it extends to the music and then on the programming side. So the, the way in which studios use South by, I would say probably goes back to when knocked up launched right. there very Act successfully. Tau. Yep. This Seth actually, Rogen, the whole what, nine yards. Yeah. Seth Rogen still right. takes his movies there. Well, as he did so this prior, year. To, prior to Jan, this was Matt Dentler. That was an interesting moment for South by because at the same time it was also developing a brand on the festival circuit as a platform for really small scrappy movies. And that's kind of where the media buzz around Mumblecore started. Yeah, that Dunham and so forth, tiny furniture. The, the year that I went in for the first time in 2007, I saw at the Paramount where a lot of big movies launch, Hannah takes the stairs. So that year you, Greta could, Gerwig. Feel, you could feel a certain kind of, enthusiasm for Greta Gerwig as a story and for Joe Swangberg as a filmmaker. And that movie also had other filmmakers in the cast, you know, uh, Andrew Bujalski and and Mark Duplass. And so there was, there was something really interesting about creating that platform for that kind of movie in tandem with a certain kind of edgy studio comedy. But what's, what I think is a challenge now is there, there were good films in competition at South by that are very below the radar. The French film that, that won the grand jury prize. Alice is, is a very interesting character study about a, a, a woman whose husband leaves her and she becomes a sex worker to make ends meet. It's kind of almost like a Darden brothers type of social realist quality. And a discovery of a new uh, actress. Very, very lo-fi piece of filmmaking. South mountain was another one that, that had that kind of quality to it in the, in the competition. But these, these are not movies that 
exploded at the festival. The movies that exploded at the festival were the were the higher profile titles that played. I do want to see the Seth Rogen, uh, Charlize Theron. Long is it called Long Shot? Well, let me go through the 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 Paramount roster because I think it is in in a way a festival unto itself. Because opening night was Us, Jordan Peele's film, which which a movie that I I tell you with absolute conviction, I think I might actually like slightly better than Get Out. It's it's certainly a step up in terms of filmmaking, and it's going to provoke a lot of interesting reactions. Here's one thing that I want to ask you about: is is there um, a difference between Because what happened was that there was a kind of festival fervor, a kind of festival bubble, a sense that all these movies were getting rave reviews. And then back in L.A., back home, I talked to people who saw these films and didn't like them as much as the people did at the festival. It's very easy to knock festival hype as, as something that is misleading. But I have been going to festivals for close to 15 years during during a period of time when this phenomenon has gained momentum and trust my own judgment when I can tell you that a lot of the headliner films were very high quality this year. Unfortunately, that hype doesn't give you a real sense of the quality of the festival as a whole because the films that are really interesting and worth exploring don't generate those kinds of reactions. And sometimes those kinds of reactions are the least interesting anyway. But I, this is that, a valuable thing for the festival. We were at our lunch today, various publicists were saying, uh, this woman from Hulu, um, you know, we're just saying this is a very important festival for launching movies and getting the, the, the and movie TV to get now, branded yeah. and on the map before it opens. So that's, that's not an it, issue. It made a difference for, for certain movies like Ready Player One to get that kind of bump and the movie did deliver and i remember coming out of that and people saying well did it really or is it just the south boy fan south by fanboys and i'm like look i am not i just loved ready me. player one yeah i said wait and see but the, movie. the reviews at the opening of Betty, ready player one were not as rave as the this is a true across not just south by but many film festivals well, you get, you get the opening day when the print reviews come out I, I find that more sober and more refined. I, I, but sober, first of all, is a very misleading term. One, two, I find the best kinds of movies are the ones that generate different kinds of reactions. And three, South by is a very specific crowd, but it's not an entirely gullible one. If you launch a total dud there, it's not going to generate that kind of enthusiasm. Guarantee you, one hundred percent. And I think what's compelling about the US response is that this was a movie that really, really plays well to a crowd. You're not going to put a movie in that slot that doesn't. That's why comedies work. But Us is not a comedy. It's, it's an anxiety-inducing horror, horror film. And it has surprises in it in terms of what it's about. The marketing, the trailer for this movie sets up the first act of the film. It doesn't tell you that there is an 80s subtext with a historical foundation. The actual thing that this movie is commenting on is, is almost too abstract to boil down to marketing materials. And what I'm looking forward to with that movie is the South by Bubble response was more about how this movie plays in a very visceral sense. But the idea is that's something that people are going to be chewing on for a much longer period. I can't of- wait to see it. I actually showed up at a screening that was the night before and I missed it. Ended up having a delicious Chinese meal at Century City instead of So it wasn't us. all I will catch up with it after my vacation. And of course, the other one that played off the hook was Booksmart, which is Olivia Wilde's director. Can't wait. And that one when it comes to comedies that work there, Good Boys played really well there, but that's a movie that I think people aren't necessarily going to say 
you know, is, is as great a piece of filmmaking as it is just kind of a fun, raunchy comedy. But Booksmart, it's like Ladybird level enthusiasm. It's just wilder. It's like Ladybird as a zany midnight movie or something because it's like that that super bad, bad model of like one day in the life of some teen kids who are trying to get into a party, except these girls on the last night before they graduate high school are they're they're just like these really wild characters and there's a animated drug trip sequence a fantasy dance dance sequence i mean this movie really goes for it i just want to say it's got a lot of support behind it like, is it an awards well, movie though you're comparing think, it you're comparing I, it to ladybird i i i'm gonna say I right now say. that i it, because i think it the potential could be that i don't know what's going on in annapurna and, and exactly what the future of this movie will look like in that regard. But I have to tell you, there were other people who saw the movie in New York whose responses echoed those of, of South By to the extent that there could be a serious play there if the movie's When's it opening? Well it's opening in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, so, so that that really precludes an award. But think about it like this, Anne, because you're going to see it. Is This is a movie that I think could really galvanize a certain millennial viewership that will sustain its life and if it has a long-term commerciality and really becomes a cultural phenomenon then there is a conversation to be had there well Being, the annapurna thing that you raised let me just say one thing no, wait, wait, wait. But let me just say off of what i the, the point i'm making here beanie feldstein who you know a lot of people kind of quote unquote discovered in ladybird they thought she was great um she is the main character and it's in some ways, an evolution of the persona she plays in Lady Bird, but she's the main character and she's wilder and more memorable. And people are going to come out of that saying she has really arrived with this performance. Well, that's a valid point. Yeah. Yeah. But I was going to say, though, uh, you brought up Annapurna. Um, yeah, we part of what's that. come up, and your point is well taken, is that they ended up losing a lot of money on Vice and Beale Street because they were in the Oscar race, because they were saved until the expensive end of the year. In terms of their validity and cred as awards movies, they came out very well. But in terms of the kind of money that needed to be spent to put them in that venue and at that time and in the awards race, I suspect Annapurna is going to present a very leery eye toward repeating that again. Well, I, I, this is a fascinating question and one that I think has really created a divide between business people and, and arts people in terms of what the situation is with Annapurna. I mean, I certainly was surprised to see the way that Megan Ellison chose to respond on Twitter to Variety doing this story in which she didn't choose to comment about she never does. He had, and yet she did in sort of this cheeky way online, a gif of Beyonce swimming in, in money in slow-mo. I mean, the argument that I think some people would like to make on her behalf is she's got money to burn and she's doing it for all of these great films and there's stuff coming out of it and it's on the level of representation and risk-taking. You know, this is somebody who can get away with doing that and that should be praised and celebrated. She but still has to make uh, a profit at some point. And what her new pivot is, is and one of the things that a lot of these stories about Annapurna's dire finances failed to recognize was that part of the business plan involved a distribution deal, uh, a partnership with MGM. And I do know some people who used to work at Annapurna who no longer work there, 
post Oscars who right. uh, weren't that interested in working on these films. So she's she's definitely she may still have a few quality films up her sleeve. We still have the Linklater coming up, which has big question marks around it um, hmm. because it's been so delayed. Haven't you? Have you got a, a sense of how that movie's going to play out? Well, people have seen it. Where'd you go, Bernadette? Yeah, that that it's really good that it has more payoff than a lot of people have have gotten from his last few movies and, and could seem like a real commercial movie. I mean it's got Kate Blanchett in it. But um No guarantees it, there. It's a real open question is is, you know, can this movie be presented to the world at the right time with the right I love her, but she's not necessarily box office, that's all I mean. I, yeah, I, I mean, can't and, wait and to see her. And, and I love Link later. Yeah, I can't I wait to say, see the movie. These are not that's not a safe commercial bet. But no. there's open question of you know, it's one thing if you if you manage expectations and you're small and scrappy and just work on movies that you love, but it's something else when you need to keep the lights on and you have other business players. Exactly. So, so I think they've shed some of the expensive people. They had a lot a lot of people that were working on all that that raft, that slate of of movies last year, um, weren't necessarily full time staff. So I think they're getting, you know, they're le- trimming it back. Yeah, I mean, it's an open question, too. Some people saw Booksmart, and they were like, why isn't this an A24 movie, a company that really does go for this kind of stuff, but also makes very careful business decisions? Because Booksmart is a movie that should work. And when you see it, you'll see why. Um, it just is. It, it delivers in a certain kind of way. It's very well made, very good performances, but also speaks to a certain kind of experience that will resonate for a lot of people. You wanted to know about Longshot, which is another film that was sort of launched in this splashy commercial way at the Paramount, which I, I had a lot of fun with it. I would certainly wouldn't overpraise it, but what's kind of neat about it is that it's this hybrid of, it's sort of a rom-com, but it's also sort of a political satire with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. And, um, it's Jonathan Levine who usually directs really wacky comedies. But what's interesting about this one is that it's kind of about this, um, uh, situation where um, Charlie Saren is the Secretary of State and up for potentially becoming the next presidential candidate and she hires Seth Rogen who she used to babysit as a teenager to be her speechwriter because he's a, a funny very savage kind of underground journalist type and she thinks he can help her kind of with her image problem so she's dealing with all this, you know, sexist media perceiving of her in a certain kind of way. And she's bringing him in to humanize her. And of course, they fall in love in the process. So it's kind of an interesting movie in that it's a little too long, but it but it's swinging to do something different with the rom-com formula than we've seen in a while. And they're both really funny. I love that Charlie's is willing to go for these kind of edgier, really vulgar comedy roles in tandem with the other stuff that she does, because... She really is funny in this movie and holds her own with Seth in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I don't think that the trailer tells you the whole story in terms of the different weird turns that this movie takes. So Cannot wait. Um, Cannot wait. So here's my other question for you. I mean, one of the things that um, Chris was saying uh, also is that there's all, you know, if you're a film person and you get a ticket from a publicist and you can get into a movie, that's good. But if you're trying to get into the Jodie Foster talk or one of these other things, Good luck. Um, these well, are, the, it's a really tough uh, festival to cover if you're the, not. The thing about South by is that it's not a festival, it's many festivals. That's a challenge that, you know, Toronto has a challenge with scale that's completely different. But there, if, if a festival is serving multiple audiences, you're going to probably have crowd issues. And South by, the crowd only gets bigger. 
for a variety of reasons, many of which have to do with the non-film or even entertainment components. One of the and all things, these big political events like well, AOC say, and it, Beto it, and everything. By far the biggest shift this year was the volume of, of uh, politicians at the festival. I mean, yes, Barack Obama came a couple of years back. I covered that. To, he went to Torchy's Tacos and, and kind of did that whole thing. And that was fun. But this year, it felt more like an integrated aspect of the festival's DNA. Like if you were a left-leaning politician, you probably had something to say at South by Southwest. And that itself marks a very dramatic turning point in terms of the kind of exposure. I mean, you read about Beto O'Rourke announcing his, his candidacy in the Times. But he had a doc to show, and they, so did well, AOC. Yeah, but he, neither of them had those docs. Somebody made those docs around them, and they were there. But they, but Beto reportedly, according to the Times, also took meetings for uh, potential people who were going to work on his campaign while he was there. I love so it. By itself becomes a, a, a sort of a gathering platform for the American left at this particular time of year. I mean, good luck getting somebody to come to your little movie premiere because that's a totally different kind of challenge. So it'll be interesting to see how this continues to grow. I do want to talk about other stuff, though. Um, I saw one Netflix movie at South By and I was thinking about the Netflix situation that we've been talking about the last few weeks. The movie that I saw... Uh, the Highwaymen is probably not that one. That's a good either. trailer. I want to yeah. see that. It probably doesn't pertain to this whole Spielberg versus Netflix thing, but you know you can see it on Netflix by the time people are listening to this podcast because it'll be everywhere. It's it's okay. It's a, it's. I said it was like True Detective as the ultimate dad movie because it's uh, Costner and and Woody Harrelson driving around Texas looking for Bonnie and Clyde. So it's sort of like... It has a great premise. Started. I think that's yeah. a great premise. It's, what I noticed <laughs> that was weird was that you, you, we talked about Triple Frontier and, and their billboards all over town. And I read your review and wanted to see the movie. And I recognized that I was annoyed that I had to wait a week. You can see it now. It's on Netflix now. But you had to wait a week between the time that they put it in theaters and made it available on Netflix. It's funny because it's like only a week <laughs> or going to see that movie on Netflix anyway, but uh, clearly they use it as a marketing launch. Yeah, That's it, a new deal. It does it does the trick in that respect. And I wonder if, if with Highwaymen not having the theatrical makes a difference in a particular regard because you want to see that movie. I mean, you look at those faces and you read about the those subject. Those are all movie stars. Yeah, it's and and like I said, it's totally watchable. It works on Netflix. It's I don't think we'll be talking about it in a couple of weeks, but Netflix is obviously in a really interesting position now, producing as much, if not more, content than they were six months ago, and and you know, subscriber base is strong and all well, that. Well, what's happening? We were talking about this today at the Emmy launch, um, uh, the IndieWire Emmy lunch. Um, so basically, the, they know that shows like Friends and and the stuff that the you know the comfort shows that people just love to watch, Friends itself leaves in 2020, and the reason. Uh, and a lot of other content, you know, they had Black Panther on uh, during award season. Well, that's not going to happen next year. Uh, they, they won't have any Marvel or Disney product because Disney's launching Disney Plus. And, you know, when I go to CinemaCon next week, this whole thing is going to be front and center that, the, you know, the, in, the elephant in the room. And at our lunch today, not only was Netflix there and Amazon, but also Apple. 
Apple is going to yeah. make their announcement yeah. very soon as it's to how happening. they're going to bring their new projects that have been in the works. I mean, they've been announced. They People know what they are. There's a Reese Witherspoon series or whatever. But these things are going to come out and they're going to have they have an awards guy who came to our lunch. There's going to be Emmy campaigns for yeah. Apple stuff. So. The whole thing is going forward. You know, Warner Brothers a year later is going to have Warner Media is going to have its thing. The head of HBO left because HBO is going to be increasing its content, you know, in competition with with Netflix and Disney Plus. So we have a whole new world. And how are the good old fashioned theaters going to, uh, you know, hold their ground uh, against the encroaching streamers. That's what that Spielberg versus Netflix idea was about. The big turning point, in addition to this upcoming Academy meeting that we've been assessing and anticipating for a while is this CinemaCon event in Vegas, which a lot of people who aren't in the industry don't necessarily know that much about, but this brings all of these exhibitors together and you have to assume a lot of the sort of anticipatory conversations about what the real Netflix versus theater on a situation is about is going to come to a head on the trade floor. So what do you expect? I expect a lot of these, well, first of all, there's going to be a Fox Disney presentation that's together, which I find very sad. Last year, the last Fox presentation, you know, Stacey Snyder was there, you know, it was very sad. You know, it, this is a major studio that, that yeah, does. Yeah, a lot of people do that, but shouldn't it be exciting on some level because Fox has more resources? There's than one before? less. I mean, let's talk about this. I mean, NATO, which is the National Association of Theater Owners, represents all the big theater chains, the theater chains that refuse to play Roma, that refuse to book Roma at the Arclight, where it would have made like $3 million if it had been playing there. They cost themselves money by not booking Roma. There's a story, if you haven't seen it, from our box office guy, Tom Brueggemann, about what would have happened if Roma had actually you know, been, been released in all the theaters that it could have played. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's like, do you, do you retrench and fight off you know, the oncoming future or, or do you figure out how to adapt to it? And that's what that Spielberg versus Netflix idea is all about. You don't go back to the Academy and try to put the genie back in the bottle and say, you know, we have to give every movie a, a, a certain uh, window of exclusive theater play. You figure out what the future of movies is. You don't say Roma's not a movie. You say Roma is a movie. And how do so, we adapt to this? This is interesting too, because so Amazon once went to CinemaCon and sort yeah, of they're not doing a presentation this year. And, and but there was a there was a For big a reason. Bob Bernie went up to all these exhibitors and basically said, as I recall from the reporting, we are going to release these movies in theaters and got applause and stuff. Well, now we well now he's not having a presentation. behind the scenes. They'll be there, but people are gonna, the, the theater owners are going to be saying, "What the hell? You know what 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 are you doing?" And they're going to say, "We are adopting a much more flexible model." Film by film, the films that actually deserve to be in theaters for a long time, we will book in theaters for a long time and we'll give them a window. And then there are other films that aren't going to do that. And one of them is the Soderbergh movie, uh, The Report. That's going to be an interesting case to see how they play with that. Yeah, I mean, it's still an open question. And then Netflix, I assume, is just going to be creeping around. on. I don't even know if they go. 
Well, you would think that you think Tetsarandos is like is like Satan over there, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, that's sort of the interesting challenge here. It's like you can't fully ignore that community for the for the, with the agenda that you have. If you're a, co- a company that needs some element of theatrical, I mean, unless they just want to buy some theaters and release movies in theaters that they own, which who knows if that's still something being talked about. You know, I mean, what's really interesting is that is that Netflix is sort of figuring out how to use theaters to their best advantage. It's why it's fascinating to watch them. You know, one minute they're in the awards race and they give Roma a three week uh, you know, exclusive. The next minute they're with a commercial movie that has no awards potential at all, like Triple Frontier, and they give it a week, you know, and then they take the one we just talked about, um, the, the Matthew McConaughey, uh, Woody Harrelson one, What right? And they- no, I- that out with no theaters. Oh, um, you're talking the about Kevin, 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 Kevin Costner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, so that that means that they that they have different models for different things, and they're trying. They're looking at what the numbers are in the end. Every once in a while, they do boast about how well Bird Box did. You know, in its first week, going to like 42 million subscribers. You know, it's they, they, crazy because that's not it's not even that great of a movie. I did, this is the whole thing. It's it like, shows you the power of a movie yeah. star in a genre film. Yeah, which is great, but it's not necessarily. They something. have algorithms. They have algorithms that show that Kevin Costner in a in a certain kind of kick ass action movie like the you know basically a rip off of The Untouchables on some level will yeah. do will do business. But it's like you can only reverse engineer content for so long before people start to call you on the BS. You know, not they, on Netflix. They can't just produce bad movies. Like they needed a, they need a Roma. They need at least something on that level. And I suppose maybe that's the Irishman, or maybe it's the Noah Baumbach movie that doesn't. Well, the Irishman is going to be the the perfect case in point. I mean, we did some math on this, and you could open a movie like The Irishman in some two hundred independent theaters. The way remember Seth Rogen's the the movie that got all messed up because of the Sony hack. Yeah, but that was that just like went out for, via the art house convergence. You could do but something like that. The interview uh, yeah, I mean, but they, that was sort of like a dire situation. Like the studio would never have done that if they hadn't been sort of No, scared. no, no. But I'm saying in you know, there's no reason why Netflix can't do it with Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. And but this is a great test because and this is what I'm gonna be asking the theater owners about when I'm in in Las Vegas, I want to know, don't you want to play the Irishman AMC? Don't you want that movie? Yeah, find out because honestly, it's like it, it, it goes both ways. I mean, if they want that movie, they should be taking it. But if it forces them to break their model and create some new precedent well in that case it really kind of depends on a lot of factors i mean first of all one hopes the irishman is really good obviously people want to see it and maybe assess it on that level it sounds like it might be quite long it's it's there's a lot of factors like the and expensive yeah one of the best ways to make that money i mean netflix wants people to tune in to see the irishman remember that's their first goal is to get subscribers to come and see the Irishman on the site. They aren't in the theatrical business. But in this particular case, with a movie that cost upward of $175 million, if not $200 million, they could make some money back in theaters if they wanted to. Yeah, no, that's true. So they, so it'll be interesting to see what happens on that front. But perhaps the most important thing that we need to talk about, setting aside all of this industry chatter, is 
whether or not the aftermath is worth seeing this week. <laughs> so Eric, you ran a review of this movie, which is a perfect Ann Thompson movie. It is period. It has Kira Knightley and Alexander nothing, Skarsgård nothing and Jason Clark. About it. <laughs> and it's not your demo. You are, this, this is a romantic triangle period, serious drama that is, you know, very much aimed at me. I think. I love a good sexy romance. If it has something fresh about it, I was just fully. This did have sexiness. Yeah, it had a decent sex scene. I don't know about sexiness as a whole. I mean, it's a good-looking cat. I'll take a good sex scene. One decent sex scene, another one that I, th- I found pretty uninspired, and that's kind of it. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good-looking movie. There's like the outline for a quality movie. There, it just it never. So, if really you were going to say what went wrong with it, what would you? Because I, mean, I have a theory on what went wrong with it, but I want to hear what you think. Well, I mean. My my, what I was disappointed by the movie was it just never did anything exciting and edgy with the scenario that it develops. That it kind of falls into a formula really early on, and it never transcends it. It's got the most cliched movie scene ever with the, the, this train goodbye towards the end. That I think is it's sort of the 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 essence of this movie, which is that there's something really um, subversive about the affair this woman has with a German man, this is British wife of, of a, of a army official has with a German man and nothing. They're taking really... over his house and he's an architect yeah. and he's sensitive. And by the way, he's Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I mean, he does not work in that role. That's oh, I thought he was terrific. I mean, he's not supposed to speak English that well, according to certain lines, but he doesn't really have an accent. So, so there, there's like logistically there are issues there, but I also kind of felt like the, the overall scenario the way that it's resolved i just didn't buy the the decision making on the parts of various characters throughout well, it's not very well written is the bottom line yeah. so if you have and and what you have is you have a, a very uh jason clark and and alexander skarsgård are both really good actors and they do as well as they could with relatively rich roles you know the tortured uh guy they're they're grieving the loss of everybody's grieving the loss of somebody from the war the couple the british couple are grieving the loss of their kid and the uh which has hurt their marriage and uh the um German guy and his daughter are grieving the loss of the wife and mom. So there's a lot of comforting going on there. Um, but but the but the issue is that poor Kara Knightley has the worst role, the saddest, most uh, angriest, most unattractive role that of the of the classic wife. All she has to do is wander around the house because nobody's there to entertain her except the German guy or or go to have lunch with her friend and gossip. There's nothing in her head, nothing in her life that's of any interest whatsoever. And oh, that's absolutely. why this movie I mean, is so bad. It's an old formula with an outmoded type of underwritten female but part. But why Fox Searchlight would make this movie is another question I have. Well, you know? I, This I is top do. of the line uh, distributor here. I think on some level, I mean, I, who knows the specific details, but it, you know, the filmmaker himself is somebody who has had some work that's been appreciated in the past in a similar vein. He directed, uh, uh, what was is it this called? James yeah. Kent? Yeah, he directed Testament of Youth uh, just a couple it was of years okay. ago. okay. That was with yeah. Kit Harrington. But I think you could see from a movie like that that there maybe was a potential to take the next step up and perhaps 
you know, he got into the searchlight business around then. It seems like a project that may have been floating around for a while. Yeah, no, it was. I happen to know somebody who knows the history of it, who told me it was going on and on and on and on for years. Yeah. And maybe there was something wrong with the script. Could be. <laughs> That's the answer. And then eventually they just had to put their foot down and, and say, let's get it out there. But I don't so, want to blame, I don't want to blame Kira Knightley here because there are a couple of places in the movie. There's a scene at a piano with the daughter where she actually comes through and, and is very, very moving and very good and i realized it because they gave her something to do yeah but she's playing claire la lune which is another total movie cliche it's the moonlit light coming through the window i mean are you freaking kidding me you know on paper that should have been vetoed but in any case it, it's it's a we're movie. not recommending the yeah. aftermath so you're about to drop off the grid for a while and usually we don't talk too in-depth about movies that one of us hasn't seen. But since this is opening while you're away, I think you should let us know a little bit about what you thought about Dumbo. And um, you got a chance to talk to Tim Burton a little bit. So give us a little window into what's going on with that film. So I, you know, you know, there were two trailer drops from, from the Disney, you know, they've been doing these live action remakes. And uh, of course, Burton was the first one that was so successful, the Alice uh, remake uh, live action. And then others have followed and you've got Maleficent and you've got, uh, you know, a sequel coming up with, with Angelina Jolie and you, you know, they did uh, Jungle Book and so forth and, and Beauty and the Beast and now uh, Dumbo. And there's another one coming, Aladdin, the Aladdin trailer. This is Guy Ritchie with um, Will Smith uh, as the genie. That one sort of fell with a big thud, you know, really looked pretty bad. The Zumbo trailer looked great. So I'm happy to report that the movie is really good. It's very period. It's got extraordinary design, big surprise. Tim Burton knows what to do. And it has a central animated character, Dumbo. And it's very hard to take... Uh, live action elements and combine them so artfully with uh, animated ones. And I have to, I have to say he did a, he did a lovely job and, and his old uh, cohorts, Danny DeVito and Michael Keaton are both delightful in it as, as well. And when I showed up at the, (laughs) when I showed up at the, at the hotel to do the, the interview with him, they do this thing with junkets, right? Where they go, okay, 15 minutes. (laughs) You know, how am I going to do this? And so I wall, I I run in and he's sitting there and he says, welcome uh, to the North Korean summit. Cause it was like this big conference room with a white cloth table. And he was where, and I said, yeah, look at you. He was wearing glasses that could have been on Kim Jong, you know, big, big, big sunglasses. So um, anyway, we just whizzed through the interview. Bam, bam, bam. I love this guy. And I look forward to uh, writing it up before I go away. I hope to see the movie at some point. I'm also going out of town soon to um, Japan in, in a little over a week. I don't know if it'll be out there yet, but I'm... I, so I'll be in Ireland and you'll be in Japan. As my, and I have to tell you, I always love going to see movies when I'm in other countries just to experience, you know, the crowd's like, what the theater's like. So I hope to see it soon. I'm always curious about Tim Burton because in spite of the many missteps I think he's made in the last few years i will always go see one of his movies because you can detect a certain aesthetic there that you know is, is very singular so he brings his own voice to every project whether it works yeah. or it doesn't yeah so yeah so we're going off the grid you you're sort of you I, I just made it through another festival you're still recovering from award season so we're going to take a bit of a breather and then when we come back 
you'll be in CinemaCon mode, so we'll finally be able to dig a little bit deeper into the stuff we've been anticipating, and then it's just full steam ahead. Can's right around the corner. All righty, then. Enjoy your time, man. You've deserved it, and you I look too, forward Eric. to seeing you soon. Bye. All right, bye. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.